Brethren, I have a question for you today. What makes you happy? What really causes you to rejoice? Really gets you excited and causes you to be very happy. Now, there are different things, I'm sure. We have different interests and and different things that we like. And of course, you know, life is in stages. As, As young children, little kids, you know, something will make you happy that might not appeal to another stage in life. As young children, a mother's presence can make a little child really happy. That, that feeling of security, that, that uh, happiness of just having that attention uh, that you get from mom. So that would make a little child really happy. Time with your dad as a little kid, doing the things that only fathers can do with a child, a little girl or a little boy, teaching them things and taking them places and and having that kind of experience that really makes a little child happy. Being with dad. You know, a new toy. You ever seen a little kid's face just light up with a new toy? I used to watch my kids and I would buy them a nice toy and they would like that, but sometimes they would have as much fun with a jar lid and a spoon. <laughs> so, but a new toy makes a little kid happy. Doesn't take as much, you see, as it might later on. So uh, accomplishing something new makes, makes a little kid happy. Little things that we take for granted later on in life. I think about a time many years ago when our son Todd was about five years old. We were at the Feast of Tabernacles and we went to a skating party. And so Todd had never skated. So uh, we're on skates at the rink. And, and after falling down many times with that, with much difficulty, he finally made it all the way around the rink without falling down. And he rolled up to the rail there where Barbara and I were sitting and he said, Dad... He said, I can do everything now. (laughs) He said, I can whistle, I can tie my shoes, and I can skate. And I said, son, that about sums it up. (laughs) So you see, you see, little things, accomplishing some new thing makes a little kid happy. Now, as we go along, as as teens, as we grow a little older, what makes a teen happy? Well, uh, new freedoms. Being able to do things without constant supervision by mom and dad or some adult. Just the new found freedom that you have when you get a little older. Being able to come and go and to maybe uh, attend some function or do something without uh, close supervision because you're growing older and you're learning. So it makes them happy to have those new freedoms. Having new responsibilities. Realizing that they're trusted, and okay, now they can do something and have that responsibility, and the parents or school officials or someone can count on them, and, and so it makes them happy to know that they're able to handle those new responsibilities. Uh, for a teenage, finding you out you can outrun dad. Now, that'll make you happy <laughs> as a teen, you see, because you always look up to them, and your parents are bigger and stronger, and, and, and you know, when you find out you can outrun dad or maybe out-wrestling, you see, that. That makes, that makes a, a young man, a young teen happy. Uh, having new clothes. Now, does anything uh, make a teen any happier than having new clothes? You know, thinking that, oh, here's the new style or the new color or uh, something that is theirs. So it makes them happy to have that. Going to camp. I've watched our youngsters in the church just really get excited with the anticipation and the preparation about going to camp. And then while they're there, it's great. And then when they get home, they savor that and, and go over that and visit about that. And, and so camp makes teens really happy. You know, for teens, finding out that the opposite sex is not yucky. 
is the real source of happiness. I mean, this really makes them happy. You know, there comes a time when that happens. <laughs> Sometimes it's like that. You know, one day they're yucky, the next day they're nice. <laughs> so you, you, finding that out is, is really what, you know, makes, makes teens happy. Now, as adults, as we go along, again, life's in stages. Why, <clears throat> being happily married certainly is one source of, of uh, uh, happiness. And enjoying that, savoring that, and building upon that, that's really good. Uh, making your own way as an adult. Making your own way in life. And uh, not being dependent upon parents or others. Being successful in whatever field that you've chosen. That, that brings a source of happiness to, to adults as you come along, you see. Um, enjoying your work. Enjoying your work is really important. And I think it's always sad when someone ends up in a field that they, that they don't like. They don't look forward to going to work every day. One of the uh, great American poets, you may know him as a country music star named Merle Haggard, <clears throat> he had a great line in one of his songs. He said, Wish I enjoyed what made my living. Did what I do with a willing hand. You see, and it's important. Uh, and it helps us find joy as adults when we enjoy our work. And certainly having children... Is, is a great joy. We get our greatest joy and sometimes our greatest pain from our children, but that's, that's an experience that, that we can enjoy as, as adults. Um, uh, planning and growing, seeing plans come together. It's, it's a sweet thing when you work towards something and you plan, and over time, through effort and energy and God's blessing, it comes together. As an adult, that can bring uh, real happiness and rejoicing. And as we grow older, uh, you know, life is, time is relentless. You know, if one day at a time we grow older and as we get to middle age and, and, and older age, uh, what makes us happy? Well, I think savoring life. You know, not being maybe so rushed as we were in trying to make a living and raise children and do all the things that we do with the pressures of time. Savoring life and in the, the life's experiences, taking all the experiences that we've had up to that point and investing it into the moment and enjoying your surroundings. Um, you know, uh, my dad told me once, he said, son, I didn't know trees were beautiful till I was 50 years old. <laughs> I, never I never took time to look and slow down and just enjoyed it. And at that point in time, he had slowed down and he would, he would savor life's experiences, even the beauty of a tree or plants or those sorts of things. And sometimes it, 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 that doesn't happen until we grow older. Certainly as older people, we enjoy our children and especially our grandchildren. You know, they call them grand because they are. <laughs> and all of you that have grandchildren know that is a great joy to grandparents, to, be, to spend a little time with those grandchildren, to have an influence on their life, to teach them things that maybe mom and dad don't have time to or that mom and dad uh, haven't learned themselves. And you can teach that to your grandchildren and to savor that. And, of course, in this society where we're scattered and uh, we may not see our grandchildren very often, but happily with, uh, with email and with photographs on the Internet and those sorts of things, we can keep in touch and, and, and really enjoy that. As older people, we certainly enjoy or should enjoy family gatherings, you know, getting together with family. And uh, children and grandchildren and aunts and uncles and cousins and, and all of that. If you can do that, that is, that's just a great joy. We, we really uh, put a value on that, particularly as we grow older, that maybe we didn't when we were younger. 
So there's so much more, brethren. We could look at so many more things, but you get my point. Life can bring the joy of family, of accomplishment, of pursuing your interests. You know, God made mankind that way. He made us that way so that we could enjoy those things. Turn back to Ecclesiastes. Now, I'm going to have an adventure today. I'm using, I'm breaking in a new Bible. So if you see me searching for scriptures, <laughs> it's because I'm not familiar with this one. But my, my old one's about worn out, and I want, to, I want to break in a new one. Turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, written by Solomon, who was so very wise, written from a physical viewpoint. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24. Solomon wrote, Nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. Again, enjoying your work, your activity. This also I saw was from the hand of God. So Solomon, in his wisdom, recognized that it is a matter of joy. It's a good thing when we enjoy uh, the physical things in life. Going on in uh, chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, verse 12, Solomon wrote, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man, every person should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. And you know, as we sit down to a fine meal, as many of you did last evening, I'm sure, and, and I'm some, many will this evening as we end up the Sabbath day and begin an annual holy day, that you'll really enjoy the blessing of a good meal, good food and, and drink. We enjoy that. It is the gift of God. We thank God for it and we appreciate it. Verse 13, <clears throat> I'm sorry, going down to verse 22. Verse 22, it really repeats that. It says, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 22. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? So Solomon was explaining, this is the human experience. Look around you, brethren, in this world. This is what you see. This is what people have to enjoy. That's what they have. But... Is that all there is? Is that all there is, brethren, for us as Christians? No. You know the answer. No. There is another dimension available to us. Another dimension. It's, it's different from the activities and the pleasures that we mentioned as we began. There is another dimension that we can enjoy. So today let's look at what God's Word says about joy. About being joyful. Rejoicing, the Bible does have much to say about it. If you'd like a title for today's sermon, I've entitled it, The Joy of Our Salvation. Now, if you want to define joy, go to the old standby, Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. Joy is defined as the emotion evoked by well-being. Joy is defined as a state of happiness. Now, look around you, brethren. Look around you. You won't find much happiness, uh, much genuine happiness in the world today. You can look in every corner or every part of society. You can look in different cultures and different places around the world in the human experience. And this time, in this age, you don't find a great deal of genuine happiness. And 
If you're happy, if you go about your daily chores and your daily tasks and you're happy, if you're joyful, it will make you stand out. People will wonder, what are you up to? (laughs) Because it's a rare thing. It's a rare thing. And if you're happy and joyful, it stands out. It can't help but do so in this society. Now, the kind of joy that I'm referring to doesn't kick back. It doesn't happen at the expense of others. You know, some people love to play practical jokes. You know, that's not really a good idea. They always kick back. It's not something that that we should be involved in. Happiness, real happiness, doesn't happen at the expense of others. It isn't a a giddy, silly feeling. That's not real joy. That's not real happiness. The joy that I'm talking about really begins with the discovery of God's truth. Something that is permanent. Something that lasts. The discovery of God's truth. Coming to uh, understand God's way of life. There's the basis, you see, for real happiness. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. <clears throat> Here we have a series of parables in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 44. You know this well, but let's look at it anew today. Matthew 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, brethren, we read over this little brief parable, and we may overlook something that's here. It says, first of all, that this treasure was hidden. You know, God's truth is hidden from this world. The vast majority of the teeming millions on this earth do not understand this truth. It's hidden from them. Their mind has not been opened. It's not the time for their understanding. And yet, uh, certainly, God is calling some, and He is opening the minds of some. But for this world, and for most of mankind, it's hidden. It is like a treasure, as mentioned here, that is hidden. Now, it goes along here and said, which a man found. Now, uh, he recognized the importance of it. He obviously, I think, was looking. You know, people are looking for God's truth. If they're seeking God's truth, God will open it up. I've talked to many of you here. And I know that as you came into the understanding of the things that are so important, uh, you were, in most cases, were looking. There was something missing. And you were studying your Bible. You were looking for answers. And like this man, when you found it, you recognized that it was something of value. And then it goes on and says, and for joy over it, I mean, this man was ecstatic. Obviously, he was very happy. He was very enthusiastic that he had found this treasure that he had been seeking. It says, for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This man was willing to pay the price. And notice the price was very high. This wasn't a bargain. This wasn't, you see, something that he got a discount. Not at all. He sold all that he had and buys, bought that field. He was willing to pay the price. And it's very high. Brethren, are we willing to pay the price? It costs you your life. 
it costs you your life. It's God requires our uh, our lives. This is what He wants is for us to commit ourselves to Him. Now, you know the story. Obviously, many times people trip over opportunity, get up, brush themselves off, and hurry on their way. And that's the way it is with God's truth. A lot of people hear our broadcast. A lot of people come across our literature and see some of the things that we have, and they'll say that's interesting. They'll take a little bite, and then they'll lose interest and go on. They don't recognize what they have found. They don't recognize this treasure. So as we look at this parable, we see that this man wasn't cool. He wasn't laid back. When he found this, he was passionate about it, and he acted upon it. And clearly, this is the attitude that God would have us to have, to be passionate about the things that he reveals to us, and to be really willing to pay the price and to put it into practice and to make it ours. And again, it's something that, that not many can or have been called to do. Let's turn back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 15. Let's see the reaction of the prophet when he discovered or when he received some truth. Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Jeremiah wrote, Your words were found, and I ate them. Your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O eternal God of hosts. Jeremiah rejoiced at God's word. That's what it says here. He said it was the, it was the joy and rejoicing of my heart. He found great pleasure, great satisfaction, elation in understanding God's Word and realizing that God was dealing with him and working with him. And so uh, certainly, uh, as you read this, it says um, that he, he devoured it. He, he consumed it. He ate them. You know, sometimes when you're really hungry, you sit down, and the old joke is he ate it with a gusto of a hound dog. You know, I mean, <laughs> just gobbled it up. And that's the, the mental picture that we have. So, brethren, are we eating up the truth in that sense? Do we consume it like we do a good meal and really enjoy it and savor it? We have this example and something that certainly we should do. Let's go back to the New Testament. Turn over to Luke 15. Luke 15 as we pursue the subject this afternoon of the joy of our salvation. Luke 15. And verse 10. Luke 15, verse 10. You can read uh, the parables and the words that go before, but we'll focus on Luke 15, verse 10. It says, Likewise, Christ's words here, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Think about that, brethren. The angels are joyful when a person repents, finds the truth, and begins to change their lives and pursue God's way. The angels rejoice. Now, brethren, if they do, so should we. That should bring us a great cause for rejoicing when we find someone whose mind is open, who comes to the point in their life that they're willing to repent and change and pursue God's way. That should bring us great joy. It does the angels. 
And certainly we should follow that example and, and, and pick up from that that it's something that is pleasing to God. I know that you do. We rejoice when we have uh, new people come in and whose minds are opened and they go through the process and become to, uh, come to a place where they're baptized. We've had a number of baptisms in this congregation. Around the world, we're having more and more baptisms. In the announcement, uh, it was talking about in the Caribbean where we'd had someone baptized and more waiting to be baptized. That's a cause for great joy and rejoicing. And certainly as we think about it and focus on it and pray about it, that God would bring more people in, then we can rejoice when we hear that people are uh, repenting and changing and, and coming along. As we think about this subject of Christian rejoicing, we can realize that David, a man after God's own heart, wrote much about the subject. Let's look at some of the things that he wrote. Look at Psalm 149. Psalm 149. I don't think this is a psalm of David, but several of these that we're going to look at are. Psalm 149, verse 4. Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the humble or the meek with salvation. So God takes pleasure in His people. He takes pleasure in you, the fact that you're here obeying Him and keeping the Sabbath, that you're seeking His ways, that you're trying to grow and overcome. God takes pleasure in that, and we should as well. Verse 5, let the saints be joyful in glory. Saints, of course, are those who are set apart, who are seeking God's way. Let them be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. I don't sing a lot in the bed. I sing in the shower. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but it would not be wrong, you see, just to be so moved by the things that, that you, you, you hum a tune or sing a song. Let the high praises of God be in their mouths. And a two-edged sword in their hands where it's saints should be joyful is what I take from this. As God's people, we should find much to rejoice about. Uh, news of the work, uh, uh, being a part of the work, all of those things, you see, should bring us joy as saint, the saints of God. Turn over to Psalm 144. Psalm 144. <clears throat> this is a psalm of David. Psalm 144. I hope you'll read the whole thing, but we'll begin with verse 3. Psalm 144, verse 3. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? You know, God is so great. And we as mankind are so small, so insignificant in the whole scheme of things. And yet, God does take knowledge of us. Or the son of man that you are mindful of him. Verse 4, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. You know, you might think as a young person that, you know, the summer lasts forever. You know, when school is out and this sort of thing. As you grow older, you find that time seems to to speed up. I always thought that was a myth. But I can tell you now, it's not a myth. As you grow older, time does go more quickly. And, And if you talk to somebody who's very aged, somebody who is very old, they will tell you. That life is short. Life is short. I'll show my age by, by quoting an, uh, Neil Diamond, who was popular 40 years ago. But he had a great song. It was never one of his big sellers. But it had a great line. He listed in the song many of the leaders of his day. 
many of the movers and shakers in the world who had uh, who had died. And uh, the, the got to the end of the song, and it says, They all labored under the same sun. They all wondered at the same moon. And when it was done, they all said, It's done too soon. And so the physical life that we have goes by very quickly. The psalmist understood that. He said, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Drop down to verse 15. Happy are the people who are in such a state. It's talking about those who understand God's way and who are pursuing His way. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Brethren, are we happy? We definitely should be. The psalmist had it just right. We definitely should. It should describe us as God's people. People who are joyful because the Lord is our God. He is good to us. He reveals His truth to us. He guides us. He gives us a reason for living and a reason for being. So it should describe us. Turn over to Psalm 128. Back a few pages. Psalm 128. Psalm 128, verse 1. This is a song of ascents, sung at feast time by those Hebrews long ago. Psalm 128, verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the eternal. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. You could, you could insert the word happy there. Joyful. Happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy. Reminiscent of what Solomon said about enjoying your food and your drink and your activities. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Look at these words here. It says, um, uh, those who fear the Lord, meaning having respect, being in awe of God's word and uh, focusing on the things that are important to God, not just the things that are important to us as human beings, but having fear in the way of uh, respect and awe for God. So we should fear God. It goes on and says, who walks in His ways? It's talking about how we live. Are we walking in the way that we should go? And then in verse 2 it says, the labor of your hands. There's a work involved here. You know, some people, uh, work doesn't bother them. They could watch it all day. You see, and it just it doesn't bother. And yet, we as God's people ought to be uh, laboring. The proverb says, in all toil, in all labor, there's profit. So, whatever we find to do, we should do it in that way. So, it says here that we should fear and walk and labor. And if we do that, God is going to give us joy. He's built us this way, and He's promised it. And we have that promise. We sing the hymn, trust in God and stand in awe. And that's what it's talking about here in Psalm 128. Being in awe of God and His ways. Not second-guessing Him and saying, surely He didn't mean that. <laughs> surely we don't have to go to church two days in a row. You know, <laughs> He couldn't have meant that. You see. And yet, we, we accept things and, and put those things into practice. Let's look at another psalm. Turn back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, beautiful psalm, an acrostic covering God's law and so many wonderful scriptures. We'll look at Psalm 119. We'll look at verse 97. 
Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law, the psalmist said. You know, I'm sure said with great feeling. It is my meditation all the day. Now, obviously, as you go through your day, uh, you have to think about other things. But do you think about them in the light of God's law? When you have a decision to make, do you quickly measure that decision against the law and say, this is lawful, I'll do it. I can do this with enthusiasm. I can do this with confidence because this is in accordance with God's law. Is it, is it, is it the, uh, the lens through which you look at everything? Does it decide what your values are? It is my meditation all the day. We should be thinking about those things. And I, brethren, I know that you do. I'm sure that you do. And it certainly uh, causes great joy and great blessings. Drop down to verse 105. Psalm 119, verse 105. The psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A lamp. You know, in a, this world is a dark place. It is a dark and foreboding place. And those of you who camp and those of you who, who spend time out of doors know that on a dark night, you definitely need that light. And without it, you can get in all kinds of difficulty. You can fall in the ditch or something worse. So clearly, as we look at our path, the way that we live, the way that we walk, we need a light. And God's Word is that light. It sheds light on the activities that we should embrace, the things that we should think, the things that we should say, the things that we should do. So it's important. You know, the first time you ever attended a Church of God service, what did you hear? You need to pray, and you need to study, and you need to meditate. And fast. It, That's what we do, because we, we need to know God's Word so it can be a light to our feet and to illuminate the path that we need to follow. Look at uh, verse 111, Psalm 119, verse 111. <clears throat> the psalmist writes, Your testimonies I have taken... As a heritage forever. Now, what is a heritage? It's it's an inheritance. Now, uh, if you've ever received an inheritance, you know it can be a nice thing to do. It's you know someone thought enough about you to leave you something of great value. You know we look forward to our inheritance as children of God, and certainly even physically, an inheritance is something that is a good thing. And he says here, your testimonies are an inheritance forever. It's important that we look at it in that way. And he goes on and says in verse 111, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. The heart here, of course, means the mind, the personality, the essence of who you are. The real you, you see, is your heart. So God's testimonies, the things written in his word, the the Psalms, obviously, uh, the Gospels, the, the, the Epistles, all of the things that we need. You see, the prophecies that are there, these testimonies are our inheritance. And they should bring us great joy to the inner man and to who we really, really are. A cause for great rejoicing. Going on down, look at verse 162 of Psalm 119. Verse 162. This really harkens back to one of the first scriptures we read about a treasure. Psalm 119, verse 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I hope that is a true statement in your life. 
in all of our lives, brethren, that, that when we look in God's Word, that we look at it as something of great value, more precious than silver or gold or any sort of physical thing, because it's permanent. These physical things will pass away. And yet God's Word, as we know, will not pass away. It is a treasure, a wonderful thing. Now, going right on down, just a few more verses in Psalm 119. One of my favorite scriptures, you know, we all have lots of favorite scriptures, I'm sure, but this is one that as you go through your daily lives, at home, at work, in the marketplace, in your family, wherever it might be, this is a wonderful, fantastic principle to live by. And it works. Psalm 119, verse 165, Great peace have those who love your law. Peace of mind. Peace at heart, you see. Not not upset or troubled or angered or whatever. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Now, the old Bible says nothing shall offend them. They both apply because a great offense can cause one to stumble. So we should should really put this into practice in our lives, brethren. And are you easily troubled? Are you easily riled up? Do you carry a grudge? I'm sure you don't, but I mean, it's just asking the rhetorical question. Then focus on this and realize that you can have great peace of mind if you love God's law and internalize it and practice it. And nothing, no matter what it will be, will offend you. Turn back to Psalm 5. Psalm chapter 5, the fifth psalm. So many wonderful words there. Psalm 5, verse 11. Psalm 5, verse 11. Here's a principle that we should grasp and practice. Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all those rejoice. That's our subject this afternoon. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you... Defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You shall surround him as with a shield. Brethren, trust is a, a very important part of this. I mean, God makes these promises. And we should trust in him to be able to fulfill these promises. We know that he can. He says, who put their trust. In you, in God. Those that do that can shout for joy and count on God to protect them, to cover them. God will fight your battles. God will watch over you and protect you. It may not seem obvious at the time, but He will do that. We have that promise. It says, shout for joy. That means not lukewarm, not reluctant, not one who holds back. You know, David set a wonderful example in that way. He was, he was an open book. When he was happy, everybody knew. And he was criticized for that. And so on. But it seems to be very pleasing to God. So I hope that as we trust in God, and, and we are not lukewarm or reluctant, but we'll really exhibit our joy in, in a right way. Just as the psalm, psalmist did here. Turn over a few pages to Psalm 19. Told you we'd look at lots of psalms. Great joy here. Great instruction. Psalm 19. 
Psalm 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting or restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Here we go. Rejoicing the heart. Again, that inner person that can have this peace of mind and rejoicing that comes only from God. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It's not adulterated. It's not, it doesn't, it's not been uh, compromised. It's not, it doesn't have any foreign objects in it, anything that's harmful. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. You know, there's a lot of uncleanness in this world. A lot of things have been perverted. A lot of things have been tainted. A lot of things that would by themselves possibly be okay have been adulterated by mixing in error and mixing in things that are rotten. Solomon said a, 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 fly, ruin, a fly ruins the, the perfumer's ointment. You know, a, a little wretchedness can ruin something very good. And it says here that the fear of the eternal, this awe and respect that we should have, is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You see, God doesn't make mistakes. Human judges do. They only have the facts that they can observe from, from human reasoning. But the judgments of the eternal are true and righteous altogether. As we look at those uh, verses that we just read, read, brethren, think about this. Perfect. God's law is perfect. Can't be improved upon. Can't be improved upon. It's perfect. And it, it, it restores or converts the soul. Uh, it's sure. Giving wisdom, you see, to the simple. We all need wisdom. You know, we understand things uh, at 20 that we couldn't understand at 10. And when we're 40, we understand things there's no way we could understand at 20. And you just go right along. At 50... There are things you can learn that you couldn't know before then. And it's a progressive sort of thing. And clearly, <clears throat> we, uh, grow, we can gain in wisdom our whole lives as long as we're drawing breath. And hopefully we are. My mother used to say, there's no fool like an old fool. <laughs> so we don't want to be foolish when we're old. We want to gather knowledge and wisdom for as long as we live. And if we're doing these things, that's what will happen. It says, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment is pure. We commented on that. And enduring forever, not temporary. Most everything that we know of has a beginning and an end. Everything that we buy wears out or breaks. <laughs> See? And yet, God's law is not that way. It endure, enduring forever. And certainly, brethren, as we read these scriptures, I hope that we can rejoice, that we can uh, be enlightened, that we can use these things to build a life that is good in this life as we look forward to the life to come. Look at verse 14. Here's a wonderful philosophy. Philosophy gets a bad rap. I mean, you can have a good philosophy. And this is one right here. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. If that's in your heart, if that's in your mind, 
if that is the basis of your prayers every day, then you will find that God will give you the rejoicing that you need. This goes hand in hand with happiness. If you're doing those things, if this is your attitude, if this is how you approach your day, if this is how you approach the problems that you're handed to deal with, then you will find the happiness that God would have you to have. Turn over a few pages to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Verse 8. Psalm 40, verse 8. It says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. So it was a delight to the psalmist. This wasn't a chore. This wasn't something where he said, well, I guess I'll have to do this. You know, rather not. (laughs) Uh, I guess I'll be forced to do this. You know, sometimes people leave the church and they say, I'm so glad I don't have to do all those things. You see, they don't find God's way a delight. And the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Look out at verse 16. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Interesting. It says to seek. Seek and rejoice go hand in hand here. Again, let those who seek you Rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. The Lord be magnified, made greater. You see, as we focus on that. And we know, you know, magnified as Jesus Christ was magnified. He magnified the law. He he came and demonstrated how it was done and showed us uh, the way. And provided the sacrifice that makes it possible for us to be a part of his kingdom. So here we see that we should uh, seek him and rejoice and be glad and magnify the Lord. I think as you study uh, your Bibles, as you put these things into practice and it ripples out into all, all parts of your life and your family, then certainly you are magnifying the Lord. You are showing that his ways do work. An important principle. An important thing to do. Let's look at another psalm. This again, a psalm of David. Turn over to Psalm 51. You know the story. David, a man of great ability, a man who loved God, who had great courage, ability, and so on, also sinned very grievously. Did a great, uh, uh, great wrong. And he knew better. And he did it. And gave in to temptation. And yet we know that he also repented bitterly. Bitterly. And God forgave him. And here in Psalm 51, we have the prayer of David's repentance. Psalm 51, verse 2. David said, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This was heartfelt. I'm sure he needed to be cleaned up, and he knew that, and he asked God to wash him thoroughly. And certainly, brethren, those of you that have been baptized and have accepted Jesus Christ, you have been washed thoroughly from your iniquity. That's the only thing that would clean you up, you see, and that's been done. And as you go to God daily in repentance, He continually will wash you thoroughly from your iniquity and cleanse you 
from your sin. As David said here, cleanse me from my sin. <clears throat> Verse 7, purge me, David said, with hyssop. Now, purge is a pretty strong word. <laughs> that means a thorough scrubbing. That will take the hide off. You know, I mean, we're talking a, a real cleaning. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop, as you know, was uh, an herb used uh, in that part of the world and it was, uh, it was used in the sacrifices and in rituals. And I don't know a lot about it. It's from the Mint family and it, it must have had uh, uh, some stiffness and so on to it like a good scrubbing. They used it, remember, to splash the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. Uh, in the Exodus, and it was used in other uh, rituals and sacrifices. So he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David realized he couldn't clean himself up. He realized that only God could do that, and he cried out to God to to do that. Look at verse 8. David said, Make me hear joy and gladness. While he was uh, guilty of that sin, etc., he could have no joy. He could have no gladness. It was only when he was cleaned up from that. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, David said, and blot out all my iniquities. Certainly, uh, we should do that. You know, brethren, in verse 8, he says, make me. Hear joy and gladness? Make me. I, I think from this, it's not, it's not wrong to ask for it. To ask God for joy and gladness. Maybe you're having a rough stretch of road. Maybe things aren't going well. Maybe you're having difficulty with this. David obviously did. And he said, he said, make me hear joy and gladness. So I think from that, that we can ask God to uh, ask Him to make you have the joy and gladness that you want to have, that you need, that all of us need as human beings. Let's go back a chapter to the book of Job. Here's a man who went through so much. What a wonderful example. Job chapter 5. Now as we look at Job chapter 5, here we're going to look at some of the comments that Eliphaz had to say to Job. Now you understand that a lot of what Job's friends had to say was true. It just wasn't true about Job. <laughs> so we can read this and we can learn from this. And Eliphaz had some interesting things to say here. We'll begin in Job 5, verse 17. Eliphaz says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Now at the time the correction is going on, uh, happiness may not be on your mind. <laughs> But he said in the overview, you see, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. You know, God chastens every son and daughter that He loves. That shows that He loves them. To abandon them, to neglect them, to not correct them and guide them, you see, would be not love, but neglect. And so we see... We should not despise the chastening of the Almighty. And we should be happy when God does that. Verse 18, For He bruises. Yes, God can bruise one, obviously. But He binds up. He wounds, but His hands make whole. Sometimes we can be a little worse for wear. 
in the trials that we go through. Verse 19, He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. So the next time you're in sore trials, say, is this six or seven? Where are we? <laughs> Where are we in the scorekeeping here? But the point is a figure of speech in saying that even in uh, uh, troubles that just go on and on, you can know that God uh, can deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch him. Verse 20, in famine, he shall redeem you from death. And in war, from the power or the hand of the sword. So as we look at the difficult times that lie ahead, I hope these words are in our ears, in our mind. And ask God to intervene for us. We may need uh, redeeming from the power of the sword. Verse 21, you shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. I think that's a, a, a really strong figure of speech. The scourge of the tongue. You know, the tongue should be used for good things, but it can be used as a scourge. You know what a scourge is? A scourge is when they, when they whip you. <laughs> You've heard of a tongue lashing? That's the scourge of the tongue. And I hope, brethren, that we can avoid having our tongue become a scourge. Because the tongue can be used in a right way, a good way, or it can be used to tear down. You know, the old expression that little kids say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? That's a lie. Some of the most hurtful things there are are words that can't be called back. So, keep your words sweet. You may have to eat them. I've learned that, by the way. Verse 22, You shall laugh at destruction and famine, and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. Verse 23, For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. A peaceful place to dwell. That's what it's talking about. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. I often pray when we're going to be traveling or away from home that God will watch over our place and protect it uh, from thieves and burglars and and whatever else might happen. He says that you shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age. You know, Solomon talked about there was a time to be born and a time to die. And physically, physically, we do grow old and there comes a time, you see, and you shall come to the grave at a full age as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. So Job's friend was lecturing him. But again, the words certainly ring true and are true. And then, um, certainly as we think about uh, what he started with here in verse 17, he says, happy is the man, and therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. That's good advice. And when these things happen, I hope that we'll hearken back to this, think about this, and realize that it's true. Now, the Apostle Paul understood these things. And, and wrote extensively about it. Turn back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Paul, who went through so much, 
2 Corinthians 12. And verse 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. You can read the verses that go before. We talked about how a thorn in the flesh was given to him and how he asked God to take it away. But God didn't. He had to deal with it. He had to bear it. And in verse 10, he says, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Amazing. How can you do that? Pleasure in infirmities. You might say, that's not normal. (laughs) You see, because we don't want infirmities. And yet Paul said, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, in other words, when those things happen because he was serving God, when he was serving Jesus Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And what I want to focus on here, brethren, is Paul said that he took pleasure in infirmities. Now, how could he do that? How could he do that? Humanly speaking, uh, considering what he was doing. Paul could do that because he had come to have that eternal overview that God wants us to have. If we look only at the here and now, we lose sight of our goal. If we don't think about the big plan, the whole thing that's going on, then we can become discouraged. But Paul always seemed to have that eternal overview. And I think God wants all of us to have that as well. Now, how could he, how could he do that? Turn over to Galatians, a scripture that you know by heart. Galatians chapter 5. How could Paul take pleasure in infirmities? Galatians 5. Galatians 5. Now, you know that in this chapter we find the works of the flesh described, and then we find the fruits of the Spirit of God. You can read all of it, but we'll pick up the story, the the account here in verse 22 of Galatians 5. How could Paul take pleasure in infirmities? Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, The fruit of the Spirit is love, that is, outgoing concern, and joy, and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. In verse 25, he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. How could he do that? Because the fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit, which we We'll be talking about, as we keep the day of Pentecost, as we focus on this, the fruit of that wonderful Holy Spirit, the power through which God accomplishes His will. One of the fruits is joy. So no, more, no matter what happened, because Paul had the Holy Spirit and was bearing fruit of it, he could take pleasure or have even be joyful, even in a circumstance like that. Now, let's turn over to... James, the book of James, and see what the Lord's brother wrote on this subject. James, chapter 1, right after Hebrews. James, chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, he was writing to the church, you see, my brethren, count it all joy. 
when you fall into various trials. Again, this is, this is not humanly, uh, this is not human reasoning that, that it enables one to do this. Because we avoid trials like the plague. <laughs> so this is not what we want. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Very important. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be mature. It says perfect, and that's fine, but it means mature and complete, lacking nothing. So if we have this great overview that I talked about, this eternal overview, then we can look at our trials in that way. We can look at our trials and realize that for the moment, it's painful. For the moment, it's difficult. But that's not the end of the story. Having that great overview is very important. Drop down to verse 12. James wrote, Blessed is the man, blessed is the person who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, you see, after going through that, after passing the test and the trial, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. How did Paul do it? How can we do it, brethren? By focusing on this crown of life, which is an absolute promise to those who love God and who are trying to walk according to His way. That's the reward. Focusing on the reward. It's not wrong to do that. It's good to do that. And it certainly gives us the perspective that we need. Turn back to Luke 10. Looking at lots of scriptures today, but they tell the story so plainly. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The reward that we focus on is not a physical reward. Not a physical reward. Luke 10, verse 17 talks about this. This is the account of the 70 that Jesus had sent out to, uh, to preach and to teach and to heal. And we pick up the story here in Luke 10, verse 17. Then the 70 returned. How? With joy. They were excited. They were enthusiastic. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Wow, they said. Look at this power. They never had this power before. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, that is, Satan the devil, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. He was giving them a promise that he would give them the strength that they need and the protection that they needed. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, even though I'm giving you this power and I'll give you this authority, he said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That seems kind of strange. You'd think that would be cause for great happiness. But that was just part of the process. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice, you see, be happy, be really in a rejoicing attitude. Why? Because your names are written in heaven. What's the source of our joy, brethren? That God has called each one of us, is working with us, and our names are written in heaven. So says Jesus Christ. That's the source of our joy. We have other things that bring us joy. We have other things that we can rejoice in, of course. But the fact that God is working with us and has uh, this reward for us, this spiritual reward, is the real source of our joy. Now, the Apostle Peter also understood this. 
Let's uh, turn back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four, verse seven. Now here Peter's writing and he sets the stage. He gives the time frame or the setting. First Peter four, verse seven. But the end of all things is at hand. This was his perspective. You see, he thought that the end was uh, near at that point. He says, therefore, because of the times, because of this setting, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. I think that time parallels ours, brother. We have a serious nature about it. We, we see the things beginning to develop in the world. Not, not happy things, not things that bring joy, but great trials and tests. Uh, and, and the things that the sinful ways of mankind are bringing upon the world at this time. Be serious and watchful in your prayers, Peter said. Now, we certainly need to do that. Look at verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. We need that, brethren. I think we have that, but we can improve on it. To have real outgoing concern and love for one another. Now, sometimes we're not lovable. You see, it's not easy. Sometimes uh, we as human beings are not lovable, but there's no caveat here. He says, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Meaning that we'll overlook our brother or sister's faults and work with them and love them in spite of that, you see. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And I think this is a very hospitable group. And I've found God's churches around the world that I've visited all to be very hospitable. It, It is a Christian virtue. <clears throat> and certainly, uh, verse 10, And as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Certainly we are to love and be hospitable and to serve. <clears throat> Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Sometimes when some really terrible thing happens, we're just taken completely aback. We are aghast. How could this happen? How could this happen to us? How could this happen to God's church? Peter said, don't think it's strange because it's going to happen. Look at verse 13. But rejoice. Even in the midst of those fiery trials, rejoice to the extent that you you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed you may also be glad with exceeding joy. I mean, joy to the next level. As Emma would say, another notch. You see? Obviously, you people don't watch the Food Channel. <laughs> but that's okay. It's, a, it's one of the few things that's worth watching. Okay. <clears throat> but the point is, he said, exceeding joy. It's important, brethren, that we that we grasp that for certain. And we want to have that kind of joy. So even in our fiery trials, difficult times, we should rejoice. Now, brethren, even our Savior, even Jesus Christ focused on the joy of the reward. Paul wrote about that in his letter to the Hebrews. Look at uh, chapter 12 of Hebrews. Hebrews 12. Jesus Christ faced His 
ordeal. And how did he do it? How, how did he go through that? Obviously with God's help. But in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and of course we do have the, the scriptures that give us the uh, details of these witnesses. It says, Let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Paul often used a sports analogy. Life is a race. There's a beginning and an end. And in the middle, in the, in the meantime, you run. So let us run the race with endurance <clears throat> that is set before us. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. It was a shameful thing to hang on that stake, you see. Enduring, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right uh, hand of the throne of God. How did he do it, brethren? For the joy. For the joy that was set before him. Brethren, we have that same joy that is promised to us to be a part of the very kingdom of God. As we consider this subject, as we think about the joy of our salvation, brethren, let's look at some wonderful expressions about joy. The Bible is full of them. Turn back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 8. Wonderful story all its own, and we'll just focus on what happened here. The Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles were being rediscovered at this time. And they had some wonderful expressions here. It certainly applies to all, all the year, but this is around the feast time. Nehemiah 8, verse 10. Then he said to him, Go your way, eat the fat, that is, the good things, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the eternal. Do not sorrow. Look at this wonderful expression, brethren. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. I think that's marvelous. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It helps us to be unshakable. And brethren, we need to have that joy. And it will be our strength. Very important. Look down at verse 17. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, made booths. Again, this is talking about the autumn feast. And sat under the booths, for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. So they're reinstituting the feast. You know, we look forward to the feast. In the announcements today, it talked about feast registration. Most of you are already talking about where you're going to go and what you're going to do. It's a wonderful time. And it was back then. And look at the last line here in uh, Nehemiah 8, verse 17. And there was very great gladness. It wasn't a little thing. These people were overflowing with gladness. They had great joy in obeying God and keeping the Feast of Tabernacles and, and living His way. And brethren, we, that should be our hallmark as well, that we have great joy as we follow God's way, as we keep His holy days, as we work together to do the work that He has given us to do here and around the world. The joy of the eternal is your strength. Turn over to Isaiah. 
Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. Here it's talking about the Messiah, encouraging Israel, as it says in mine. It's talking about the time when God's kingdom will be set up. Isaiah 51, verse 11. Great verses before and after, but we'll just focus on this. It says, So the ransomed of the Lord shall return. See, coming out of captivity, you see. And come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Do you get this word picture, brethren? Sorrow and sighing will just be swept away. And there will be great joy. And gladness, everlasting joy. No more interludes of great difficulty and so on, you see. Joy everlasting. And again, something that we can focus on. Something we can ask for. Something that we can meditate on as we press forward toward the kingdom of God. Beautiful words in Isaiah. And I think this is one of my favorite scriptures in Isaiah. As it talks about the things that we look forward to. A time when there will be no more sorrow and no more sighing in this world. There's plenty of it today, but it's going to be swept away. Let's go back to the New Testament now. Turn back to Philippians. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul certainly had a way with words. Sometimes his words are hard to understand, but very often he had a wonderful turn of phrase. And it's translated beautifully for us. Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation. You know, there are times when we need consoling. When we lose a loved one. When there's tragedy in our lives. When there's difficulty. If there's any consolation in Christ. If any comfort of love. If any fellowship of the Spirit. If any affection and mercy. These are all warm and friendly words. These are, these are words that, that we should be using in our conversation. Look at verse 2. Fulfill my joy, Paul said, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, you know, we're all really good at that. We're all really good at looking out for our own interests. There's an old saying in business, nobody's interested in your deal but you. Well, you know, in the church, it should not be that way. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I love the expression up there where it says, um, fulfill my joy. What he's talking about is joy fulfilled. Joy fulfilled. It's a beautiful expression. Going back just a few verses into Philippians 1, verse 25. Philippians 1, verse 25. Another one of these wonderful expressions. You know, words are powerful things. Godly things, if they're used right. And here we see that in Philippians 1, verse 25. It says, And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Brethren, do you have joy of faith? 
meaning certainly the body of beliefs that we have. You know, we have faith in God and, and that sort of thing. And there's also the other aspect of faith, and that is the, the body of beliefs, the things that we believe and the things that we practice. You see, that's our statement of beliefs that we have. That's a statement of faith. That, that is our faith, as it were, you see, the things that we do. So we have, should have joy of faith. And I know that you do. But it's good, I think, to focus on this and to realize that this is not something new. They were talking about this back in Paul's time. They were talking about this back in David's time. And here we are in the end times, and we're talking about it. Because it's pleasing to God that we focus on these things and realize the joy that we should have. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1. Verse 24, here are Paul's words to the church at Corinth. And again, a, a one of these wonderful expressions that is a memory hook and something that we can focus on that's very, very important. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24, Paul says, Not that we have dominion over your faith. He wasn't talking about dominating them, you see, and ruling over them harshly in that way. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. I think the old Bible refers to it as helpers of your joy. And I really like that better. That's the role of the ministry. To be helpers of your joy. To be with you as fellow workers. And certainly, brethren, that's your job with each other. To be helpers of your joy. To Lift up those who are, are, are down, are, are dispirited, this sort of thing, and helping them in whatever way that you can, physically, by praying for them, by encouraging them, helping them in all those ways. Turn back to First Peter again. First Peter. Peter, who was so close to Christ, the impetuous one, also has a wonderful turn of phrase here. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved, in heaven for you. There again, there's that goal. There's that ultimate joy that we will have. This inheritance that's incorruptible, it does not fade away. There's no gospel song about not fade away. Everything that we know fades. And yet we're looking at a time when things will not fade away. Look at verse 8. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Whom having... Not seen, you love, picking up the, talking about Jesus Christ in the last words of the, the verse before. Jesus Christ, whom not having seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. Joy inexpressible. Words failed him to express the joy that he felt. Better than I think for us, words fail us to really describe 
the kind of joy that we should have in doing the things that we do and following God's way. Brethren, having joy, a fruit of the Holy Spirit, is important for us in this day and time, particularly uh, in these difficult times that we're facing as we go ahead. As people look for where God is working, if they find that we are filled with joy in our fellowship and doing the work that God has given us to do in a joyful way, they will be drawn to us. And I hope that we can set that example. Please turn back to Romans 15 for my lost, my last, for my last scripture this afternoon. Romans 15, verse 13. Paul, again, with a wonderful turn of phrase, gives us something that we can think about and wrap up with today. Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, count it all joy. 